Scott Belsky didn't drop out of college, didn't go straight into being an entrepreneur. He had an idea about what a certain group of customers needed, and he kept tweaking his approach until he built the right thing. That thing, Behance, is a professional network for artists, kind of like a LinkedIn for visual people. He sold it to Adobe for $150 million. That in itself is pretty cool. But maybe more impressive is what he's done since. He helped kickstart Adobe's move to software as a service and invested early in a bunch of hot startups like Uber, Pinterest, Warby Parker, and Sweetgreen. Now he's back at Adobe, leading the development of creative cloud products. This is Fort Knox, Rich Ideas and Powerful People. I'm John Fort from CNBC. Scott Belsky is the author of The Messy Middle, a book about the challenges between starting something and declaring it a big success. I loved this conversation. Here's Scott Belsky. Scott Belsky? Yep. Founder of Behance, Chief Product Officer at Adobe, uh, investor extraordinaire, author of The Messy Middle, talking about that difficult period after you've started something before you're on the way to finishing right. and you're just kind of muddling through. Maybe it'll be great, yeah. but it's got its ups and downs. Lots of interesting insights in this book. I can't say I've literally read it cover to cover, but I've read lots of parts Thanks. in between the covers. Um, just came out in October, yep. I believe. So, but first, before we get into the messy middle, sure. let's start at one of the beginnings okay. of, of Behance. Where were you in your career when you started this company, kind of a, an online social portfolio for creative professionals that eventually sold to Adobe for $150 million, which is great. Well, what were you trying to build? Yeah. And uh, where were you in your career? What, what were you doing before? Well, it's interesting. I was about four and a half years into a job on Wall Street of all places. <laughs> um, although I was uh, at Goldman Sachs, but not doing finance at that point, I was working in a team focused on organizational development and leadership succession planning, that kind of stuff. And I was actually using some design tools at the time to, uh, to help us solve some of the uh, you know, challenges within the firm. But my background, uh, going back to college, was always in business and design. And so I was always sort of wondering, like, do I apply myself on the business side or on the design side? Business and design. Those, yeah. So those are normally two they, things they that usually don't, go don't They usually don't mix. But, it's, uh, but actually, when you think about, I mean, business is all about, um, it's about kind of visual storytelling and getting people on board and getting alignment and getting teams to see something. And design, to me, is like the cheat code for that sort of thing, when you can help uh, click people visually. You know, I like to say a prototype is worth a thousand meetings. Mm. If I can just show you what we're trying to accomplish, it's way better than having endless conversations about it. And so I was, uh, you know, at this point at Goldman, where I realized that I would want to go on and 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 do something more on the creative side. And and my obsession became how disorganized the creative world is, and how many of my friends, whether they were designers or architects or photographers or or people in advertising, um, felt like their careers were at the mercy of circumstance. They never got the credit for their work that they felt they deserved. Their portfolios were always out of date. I felt like they were tripping over their own shoes. And, uh -huh. and that, that was the impetus for Behance, to help organize the creative world. So, I mean, it sounds like your initial idea was basically what it ended up becoming. Yes. The, the vision was uh, always right from the beginning. Of course, I had no idea what it would ultimately look like. <laughs> so it's kind of like a LinkedIn for creatives, yep. in, a, in a way. Yep. Um, you can put your whole portfolio up there. People can go through it, can, can do hi hiring, uh, et cetera. It took a long time from the launch of this to the sale of it. And of course, it continues to live on within Adobe. What was the hardest part? Well, I think the, um, the, the hardest part certainly was that five years of bootstrapping the business, basically. We didn't really raise venture capital until five years into the business. It was very much like a hand-to-mouth type of operation. First of all, it was through 2008, which was a difficult time to raise anyways. Mm. Also, we were taking a rather non-traditional approach to building this or pursuing this mission to organize the creative world. We were doing conferences. We had some physical products to help organize creative people, and we had this platform. Where'd you uh, get the money to bootstrap all that time? Yeah, so some of it was money I put in from my savings at Goldman. Okay. Some of it was going to my family being like, can I have like a small amount uh, to, to just basically uh, hire my first employee? But then from that, I mean, uh, yeah, basically three or four months into the business, we were selling notebooks of all things to help creatives get organized. Uh, but always like had this literally, like literally spiral notebooks. or yeah, spiral. This spiral notebook that's still around today called the Action Pad and the Action Book that was made for creatives to be more productive, and that was kind of like a physical manifestation of our mission. I mean, did you really, was that really part of the vision or, or, or was it kind of a necessary thing to fund the business? And yeah, it was, it was, as I look back, 
um, first of all, as an investor with an investor hat on, I'm like, wow, we were just totally, you know, distracting ourselves from what was most important. But what it was helping us do is get close to our customer. And that's actually one of the biggest challenges I think most entrepreneurs struggle with is building a product because they're passionate about a solution mm -hmm. as opposed to building a product because they have empathy with the customer suffering the problem. So by actually creating these notebooks for creatives to get organized, we were forced to get into agencies and design teams and really understand um, you know, how people were working and why they were frustrated and build relationships that ultimately paid for us in the long run. Now, uh, Adobe bought Behance for $150 million, which in today's acquisition terms, the size of companies Adobe is right. buying, seems like, yeah, seems like it's small. small. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But they, they bought you guys at a time when they weren't established as sort of kings of cloud yet. Yep. For people who don't know, Adobe was the first really big established software company to go all in yep. on the cloud, to move to a subscription model. Most people thought there's no way it would work, but they have become the absolute case study for every other big software company, even enterprise companies, you know, the Intuits, the GoDaddies, et cetera. They go to Adobe to say, how do we do it? Yeah. So where was Adobe in the cloud when you joined with Behance? Well, this is, um, this is late 2012, so it was technically right after Adobe had you know, made that transition. Um, but it was at the point where that business model transition had happened, yet the products and the, um, the services elements of the, of, the, of the thesis were still playing out. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and it was interesting because you we had had- the first kind of creative-focused cloud acquisition that Adobe made. Yeah, it was us and Typekit, which was a, a product that helped people manage their fonts across products. So I was also a cloud service. And, and it, was, uh, it was the perfect timing for both of us because the company realized, wow, instead of people buying our software, say every 18 months, and whether they use it or not, you know, we hope they do, but we don't need to know, to the point where we have a relationship with our customer. We have to know if they're using month over month and what they're struggling with and whether they're getting the most value and where we should kind of augment our product efforts. Uh, that overnight became like a high priority. And if you think about Behance, at the time we had a little over 1 million creatives around the platform. Now it's 15 million. Wow. Um, and we know kind of what they're, what they're working on and what they're posting their portfolios. And we have a, a sustained relationship with customers, which is of course something you have to have when you're in the subscription business. So you've grown 15X with Adobe in the past six years? Yeah. Um, wow, first of all. But I guess in a way they've got kind of the built-in base of people, totally. but they didn't yeah. have that direct relationship with the audience the way you did. Um, in those talks, when you were talking to Adobe about whether there was a fit, what was it that they were most interested in? Well, it's interesting because we had had previous conversations with Adobe before the acquisition, and we felt like we were viewed as a marketing channel, you know, just another way to reach creatives. Yet, when we did the acquisition, that, that tone really changed. Now it really was about how do we make sure we have a relationship with our customer, how do we get a sense of the tools that they're using to publish their work, which you creatives want to show on the platform because that's how they kind of get credibility in their career, and then uh, and then know how to merchandise to the, to to creatives like which tools they might want to um, try. Also, creativity is all it's a it's sort of an apprenticeship discipline. You learn by watching other people, mm. and it's interesting. One of the most recent innovations in Behance that has really served the rest of Creative Cloud is live streaming. So now we have customers coming in and watching on average, when a customer starts watching a live stream of something we create, it's over 80 minutes of watch time. Wow. And if you think about that, it's sort of like Twitch for gaming and other sorts of uh, phenomenon like that, but this is how people learn. And, uh, and that became a, a real priority and, and, and that's panned out very successfully. In the book, The Messy Middle, you talk about how uh, an entrepreneur is not at his or her most self-aware when things are really great, or when things are really terrible. Right. Um, when were things really terrible at Behance and you were your least self-aware? Sure, well I think there were periods of time, one of the hardest things uh, for me at least as an entrepreneur was I liked the idea of trying many things and then seeing what worked. And one of the problems we had is that a number of these things ended up working. We had a task management tool uh, for creatives. We had these, this notebook line I described to you, which bootstrapped us. We had a conference. And then, of course, we had this behemoth network we were building. And I couldn't face the idea of killing one of them because mm. each one of them kind of added up to what we needed to make the business work. And we had some pride and we had loyal customers and all of them. And it was one of those moments where I learned that I was strangling the potential of the team by you know, siphoning off our efforts across the board. 
and I needed to what make some that decisions. I, I think when I found being in meetings, talking about two completely different products as a very tiny team, almost like we, you know, we were we were bifurcating our focus, yet we weren't we didn't have the scale that entitled us to do that yet. Mm. And I also think there was that question of how are we going to make a dent on this world? Is it going to be through another project management tool? I mean, we like ours, but is that going to really move the ball forward? Or is it going to be something transformative like attribution in the creative world? And I think when it came to that and facing the truth that there was really a clear answer there and everything else was noise, then the question became, all right, Scott, like, are you going to make this decision? Or are you going to keep like pushing it off? And were you most concerned about disappointing members of the team and customers who had grown attached to whatever it was that sort of lost the <laughs> the sweepstakes? Yeah, I think it was. It was uh, the idea that, well, it was a few things, taking away our optionality in one area. I always was trying to, it's interesting, everyone portrays entrepreneurs as really you know, taking on risk. And I actually think you know, entrepreneurs oftentimes try to manage risk, and that's, and that's a good thing. Um, I was trying to manage risk with these different parts of our portfolio, but at some point you have to say, all right, this is where we're going to go all in. And yes, who wants to disappoint customers? But what I also realized is that we would have disappointed everyone if we didn't make some very difficult decisions. So what did you kill? So we killed the action method, which was our task management tool for creatives. We killed the groups functionality in Behance. We killed this tip exchange where creatives would help each other with problems. We just kind of killed a number of different things in the period of a year or so, which was very difficult. But each time, it felt like a relief a week later, hmm. and, uh, which is always a good sign. And what we found in the metrics is that every time something went away, there was more customer focus on the things that remained. And so we became like, oh, well, maybe we should kill this other thing. And maybe people will be more focused on the thing we want them to do. And that became the motion. When were you at your most, at least seemingly successful, and that made you the least self-aware? I think when, when, things, when things work in any respect, you start to attribute it to the things you did um, as to uh, other sorts of factors that may play in. And um, I, would say, I would say some things around um, the success of, say, our conference, for example. We, had a, we have a conference every year and still 11 years running now for, for creatives, 1,000 leaders in the creative world come together in New York. Was it successful because of the quality of the conference or because we would blast you know, a million people with an invitation to the conference? And should that mean that we should do more conferences and really become confident in this other side of our business? Or we should just say, hey, you know, we've got a good thing going, but maybe this is something we don't scale. And at first you thought more conferences? Yeah, at first we thought, wow, we're, we're good at this and this should be its own thing. And maybe we could be like another Ted and whatever else. And then it's kind of like, wait a second, you know, let's go back to our knitting here. Like, what are we really trying to do? Um, how are we going to do it? How do we not make the same mistakes as before in terms of, uh, of, of, of becoming, you know, bifurcating our, our focus? And, um, and I think also with competition, when you start to uh, feel like you're winning against another competitor, it's not necessarily only because of the, you know, the, that your product is better. It could also be a matter of pricing, geography, um, you know, other factors at play. And so uh, it was always a challenge to say, hey, you know, let's just like, always focus on what's our conviction for the end state? What do we think this world will look like? What are we doing that will help us get there? And how are we going to be more focused? In the book, you talk about uh, your dad training to be a surgeon. Yeah. And uh, one particular method that he had for dealing with patients that uh, were in a bad way right. and needed to feel better. Right. Give them either a pill or a shot of? Yes, uh, Obikelp, 100 Obikelp. cc's of Obikelp stat. This is when he was working in one of these uh, emergency rooms in New York City dealing with all kinds of crazy stuff coming in. And, and, uh, and his observation was that you had to kind of give people the the, the belief in themselves that they're going to be okay. And Obikalp, which is, of course, placebo spelled backwards, was, the, uh, was oftentimes the remedy you know, for, for people. And, and for me, that uh, translates into suspending your own disbelief in yourself at times and recognizing that that is sometimes what is essential for you to, to, uh, to do something well or to manage a, a period of volatility. And that's right out of the endure section in the book. It's really all about the fact that we have to kind of accept uh, periods of ambiguity and uncertainty and find ways to, to work our way through. There's a fine line between Obikalp and snake oil. Yes. So you, you look at some of the recent things that have come out of Silicon Valley, Theranos, for example. Yeah. There are some things that 
you can't deal with on a placebo level. You have to believe you either have it or you don't. How do you tell as an investor yeah. the difference between an entrepreneur who's got a, a healthy stash of placebo yeah. uh, and is able to power through difficult situations and somebody who's maybe just diluted and, yeah. and, and might not be as straightforward as they need to be with customers and investors? It's a great question because I think every investor tries to work their way through this. I mean, typically investors meet an entrepreneur a few times and uh, they're told a very polished story with beautiful graphics. And of course, an investor puts or an entrepreneur puts his or her best foot forward in telling their story. And, uh, and I mean, what I always look for is, um, is the right pragmatism in the right areas. If you admire something that is commonplace, does the entrepreneur go for the bait and say, oh yeah, you know, this is special and we're really good at this? Or does the entrepreneur correct you and say, I mean, that's, you know, that's common, commonly available data or whatever else, but let me talk to you about what we do with it that's interesting. It's really important that we can't celebrate fake wins at the expense of hard truths hmm. as managers of startup teams as well. Uh, anyone can uh, try to you know, get some press for something that doesn't necessarily correlate with how things are going internally. But if you celebrate that to your team and send them a message of, well, since they're saying we're doing well, we're doing well, as opposed to saying, hey, you know, let's get back to work. You know, everyone knows that you know, we've got some bigger, bigger problems to solve than are readily you know, available or, or, or visible to everyone else. I think that's a, it's, important, it's important for the team. Yes, you should celebrate progress and celebrate wins along the way, but you can't, um, you can't make up a story that condones the wrong behaviors, because ultimately, at the end of the day, it's about the right outcome. Speaking of insight into entrepreneurs, you joined Benchmark as a general partner. Uh, that firm is very well known for um, not just the calls it has made on some big, successful uh, companies, you know, Uber, Stitch Fix, just off the top of my head, thinking Stitch Fix was, was on uh, Fort Knox on its IPO day, um, but also the kind of quality of advice that it's been able to give to some entrepreneurs. And I, and I think when you came on board, Bill Gurley mentioned just the number of calls as an individual investor that you had made that worked out pretty well early in Uber, early in Pinterest, uh, you name a number of companies that, that you've worked with in the book. How did that work as an entrepreneur? How'd you get that deal flow? Yeah, well, um, and by the way, you know, uh, I also learned that I didn't want to be a full-time investor for the rest of my life <laughs> through this experience, but, um, but you know, think of, think the world of the firm and, and, uh, and learned a lot, you know, working with them for a period of time. And I think as, a, as an individual investor, um, I've always had an affinity towards product leaders as founders, people that are thinking about the, um, the kind of psychology of the customer and you know, what is the superpower we're trying to give them. I mean, Uber was everyone's personal driver. And I remember one of the early questions in Uber's evolution was, do we, uh, do we, is the brand something that seems accessible to everyone? Or is the brand something that's aspirational, giving you something you wouldn't normally have, like a, like a personal driver? At first, it was more aspirational. It was. And that was the decision around the brand and the product experience and everything else. And, uh, and it could have gone either way, right, uh, with different arguments for both. But it's, I, I get fascinated by those problems and that stage of a business. And, and as someone who has been in the product design world for you know, over a decade now, I get the opportunity to meet a lot of these founders that really value design in the early stages. And then when I get to advise them and they're going through a seed round like Pinterest did, you know, getting to invest is, uh, is an honor and you know, it becomes a journey in itself. Um, it's, uh, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a lot of the book and the periods of volatility that I write about are inspired by some of the things that I've seen these entrepreneurs go through. Well, why was your batting average so high? <laughs> I mean, I've had a lot of misses as well. Sure, um, you have to. Yeah, no, I think, listen, I, I'm sure there is, uh, there's, there's, there is luck involved. There is also a, um, a timing period, a timing aspect involved. I also think that at the end of the day, you want to focus on a product that solves a problem in the world. Uh, you want to ha have a team that you believe has the right degree of conviction and humility and also can stick together long enough to figure it out. I almost wonder if that's one of the hidden secrets of Silicon Valley, hmm. is that one of the competitive advantages is just sticking together long enough to solve a problem. Yes, you may not have enough experience, you probably don't if you're coming together, you know, disrupting a market you've never been in, um, but all the headlines of other companies raising money, there's so much distraction at all times that pulls a team apart, and if you can keep a team together and bring them together for the right reason long enough, I believe you can uh, be successful. Let me get into your origin story. 
maybe going back to you said you were studying business and design. What were you into as a kid that led you in two different directions, but developing both of them? That's a good question. I, I always like to make stuff. I mean, I, um, I had this area in my basement where I grew up in Newton, Massachusetts, that I put up these signs, you know, called Scott's Creativity Area, and of course, do not enter underneath. <laughs> but this was the place where I would kind of go and tinker, and there was this um, children's museum that had this recycle shop where you could go and get all these materials, and I would always get these materials, and then make stuff and um, and then I also liked to commercialize it so I would make like these you know stores and stuff like that for my neighbors who were pretty patient with me um, I, I maybe there's some connection there um, I'm not sure but I I do love the the idea of not only building a, and crafting a product experience but then also thinking about you know, how do we bring it to market like what's the story here what's that one sentence that that moves the needle that's something I've always cared a lot about only child or no no I'm the oldest of three um, so that's what the keep out was for. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and how did either what your parents were doing or the um, type of community that you grew up in, how did that shape your view of the world? I think that, um, well, first of all, I think when I look at my parents, I, I feel like I was really influenced by their work ethic. You know, my father you know, was a doctor who was always up late at night doing his dictations for patients for the next day and the previous day and always up early in the morning, like 6 a.m. and would you know, get me kind of going, like, come on, you gotta get, and, uh, and you know, my mother uh, was a Spanish teacher um, and, uh, and so she, she had a, um, you know, she had a value for education and, and they were also, the most important thing is they were pretty, pretty hands off. You know, they, they, and one of the things I want to do that I learned from them is they never looked at my report cards growing up. At all? At all. They would put it on my desk, like, unopened as, like, a message to me, like, this is yours, not ours. This is your experience, not ours. And to me, I think that that helped me kind of own my destiny to, destiny to some extent. Did they do that with all four kids? Uh, all, uh, all three. three. Yeah, I yeah. didn't remember they if did. you said oldest yeah, of yeah. three or you have three. Oldest of three, yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. Um, they did. Did it work out for all three of you? I mean, every kid's different. I got two. So Everyone seems to be doing okay. Uh, okay. You know, all right. It's, uh, it's tricky, and I guess every kid's different, but it's um, if you can get uh, you know, kids to, uh, to own like kind of what they want to be, I think that that's the greatest way of helping them you know, combine their interests with initiative, and to me, that's like the lethal combo. You into Cornell? I did. Uh, what were you into there? So there I was into, um, well, in, in class, I was doing sort of, I started with environmental science type stuff, and then I went into business and design classes mm -hmm. for the rest of my time there. And, uh, and then a whole series of like entrepreneur organization type stuff. I was always kind of enterprising, I guess. I find it interesting how different uh, successful entrepreneurs are even in their mindset. Mm -hmm. Some, they refuse to work for a big organization. They feel like it just doesn't work for them. You launched a successful startup, sold it to a big organization, invested with a bunch of other, and then went back yeah. to the big organization. Why? I love building products for creative people. And um, you know, taking a step back for a moment, as we talk, and I'm sure I know you talk a lot about with your guests, the automation and commoditization of labor and the, and the rise of AI and the impact of all this. <clears throat> I actually believe that creative disciplines and creativity will be the ultimate thing that makes people stand out. And I don't think we're preparing students adequately for this future. And I actually don't even think we are democratizing the tools that people need to be creative. Uh, the productivity tools that we've known and loved and used for decades aren't sufficient. And, uh, and so the idea of you know, Adobe's mission on the Creative Cloud side is creativity for all. Taking a product like Photoshop, which is pretty complicated for most people, and making it accessible and, and, um, and, and powerful enough for pros, but easy enough for, for, for anyone is, is a really exciting challenge for me, both from a business opportunity perspective, market expansion for Creative Cloud, but I just think it's really, it's really fun and cool. And, uh, and I feel like, frankly, I feel like Creative Cloud, while people see it as a very mature business, in some areas, it's still in the early innings. There's a lot of low-hanging fruit. So that's what brought me back. And I had kept in touch with Shantanu, um, our CEO, after, after leaving and, and realized that I uh, still had some product in me. And how did that coming back conversation go? Who'd you talk to? <laughs> well, Sean and I kept in touch, and and uh, and with the opportunity, the opportunity to create this chief product officer um, role, I, I was I was really enticed by this notion of bringing design, engineering, and product together. You know, that's one of the organizational changes we made when I when I joined the company on the creative cloud side. 
And, uh, and I also think that just having- How does that work, by the way? So like, yeah. who exactly reports to you? How much of it is dotted line? How Because it's a, it's a complicated sure. organization and a complicated, you know, kind of family of products that yeah. all work together. How does that work? Yeah, so within Creative Cloud, which is all the Creative Cloud products and services, um, there's a uh, engineering design, engineering organization, design organization, and product organization, which do report up to me. And so I'm able to, um, be the person who is driving alignment across these different groups of folks and also work closely, of course, with um, uh, my colleague Brian, who oversees the go-to-market organization. And, and, um, and it's, uh, it seems it, it works pretty well. Uh, my thesis about product is that design needs to be front and center. And, uh, and oftentimes the product succeeds not because of the technology, but the user's experience of the technology. And that is a bit of a metamorphosis, I think, in some of the products at Adobe that are known for like the, the engines, the, the core tech, and the user experience, especially as these new customers come in the door that are not as proficient, um, is, is becoming more important. I always imagine that that team, or that group of teams, would be among the most challenging in the software business to manage. Because, I mean, I've met some of the engineers who work on Photoshop and like physicists dealing yeah. with how light bends and, right. you know, virtual reality stuff. And then, you know, maybe a different mindset, I imagine, with an illustrator team and then audition, you know, InDesign on down the line. Yep. How do you gain the right kind of camaraderie and credibility with so many different types of creatives yeah. when you're trying to bring them together in a situation like that? That's a great question. And um, I mean, one of the things I learned from Behance actually in the early days was that when you looked at the average creative's portfolio, they were publishing projects in different mediums. So you'd think a photographer was just publishing in photography, but she was also publishing the side stuff in video and the side stuff in illustration that she's tinkering with. And, and I realized just how much creativity is about the intersection of, uh, of different disciplines. Mm -hmm. And Creative Cloud, if you think about it, is one of the greatest opportunities for these teams to actually start being more collaborative. It's no longer every tub on its own bottom. Now you have to think about, well, how do we make assets from this one tool appear in this other tool? And how do you support workflows across them? And, and there's also a business incentive. We know that the more applications a customer uses, the more loyal they are and the more value they get out of Creative Cloud. And so I'm able to drive those um, intersections with more success these days because I think the teams are aligned on this opportunity and they're excited by it and they see it from their customers. Um, but it's, uh, but yeah, I, I think it's one of the challenges that I knew I would take on with this job and kind of have fun with is there are extremely brilliant people tucked in some of these product organizations that have been there for decades in some cases that are the industry field leader, you know, uh, one of the only people patent holders in the world, you know, and, and, um, and getting them also aligned with where we're going is a, is, is a fun challenge. I think about underutilized assets in the workforce a lot. Mm -hmm. um, we have a future of work uh, conference at work that I'm, I'm participating in quite a bit and helping to shape and, and, and lead. And part of the diversity conversation, I think, is really about underutilized assets. Yes. People, creatives, um, potential entrepreneurs out there who maybe haven't been given the opportunity to show what they can really do, I haven't been given the capital, et cetera. Creative software, it seems to me, is one of those areas where there's a really wide palette of people who could potentially get involved. So from where you sit, how do you get more women yep. into the process uh, of, of helping to shape these tools and make them, accept, uh, make them uh, accessible? More underrepresented minorities yep. um, who, who have, you know, Tons of creativity, lots of places in the world where, you know, the, the technological tools might not be in abundance. Yeah. Well, it's, I mean, something I think about a lot because my experiences on teams that I felt were most innovative, what, if, I, if I really, and I did this a little bit in the book too, like try to give myself the, the, the challenge of like, how did these teams perform? Like, how did, why were they innovative? And I really feel like it's, it really comes down to an appreciation for the edges that may become the center. And if you have a group of people that have all been working together and went to the same school, all have the same background, look the same, uh, and, and people, people are just, they, they socialize around what's familiar and they kind of reject what's foreign. And so if there's like an idea that kind of comes up along the side, no one's paying attention to it. But if you stack the deck in your favor by having people who have different backgrounds, who have different expertise, have different degrees, you know, and, and speak different languages, there's even research supporting that, uh, 
that then you have a, a better chance of, 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 of having people notice these things that are on the edge of what is so, so reason for like the majority of the group. And, uh, and then if you have a shared sense of respect and camaraderie and, and you, you bring people in, but you like do the culture work so that everyone kind of knows what each person brings to the table, what happens is that edge then becomes more familiar to the group. It becomes more interesting and socialized. And then that becomes the bet that you know, helps you change an industry. And, um, and so uh, to me, it's like, first of all, you know, the term culture fit from an interview <laughs> perspective to me is like code word for laziness. Um, you have to, you have to figure out like when you meet people, like what is this, what is the unique edge this person's going to bring? Are they just going to, are they just another, you know, no offense to Stanford, but another Stanford PhD who went from this school to this school, or do they come from like a different walk of life, just different background and are going to see things differently, but also someone we will respect quickly enough that their ideas will be taken seriously. And so I think that's part of the, you know, the, the, the approach to constructing a, a, a space of innovation and making sure that, um, that, uh, that, you know, you further diversify the workforce, but also for like a reason that everyone, like everyone around the table values and realizes is so important. You encourage uh, entrepreneurs, leaders in the messy middle to hire for initiative more than for specific pedigree and experience. How much does that apply to companies just in general yeah. um, uh, to, to perhaps shift their criteria? Well, it's, um, it's, Again, it kind of comes back to like corporate laziness. I think we all look at resumes and we look for familiar terms or you know universities or whatever to just as use as a proxy for this person's potential, and that is laziness. Because what you could also do is you could try to understand you know what has this person been interested in in the past and what have they done about it. Because past initiative is the best indicator or predictor of future initiative, and so regardless of what those that person's interest was in the past, like that tells you something about where they're going to go. But that just takes work. Mm. And um, I, I think I kind of learned sort of um, by accident in, in Behance, we didn't have the luxury of hiring the person from Google or the PhD from this because we were a small startup bootstrapping. And so instead, I tried to just hire people that seemed to have like the fire, you know, and, and some of these folks didn't even go to college and they had built websites in their dorm room and they felt like they just had to, you know, make it happen on their own, but seemed like super talented, but also people who just, you know, when they get their mind to something, they make it happen. And uh, for us, that those, those folks uh, that became part of my leadership team made all the difference. Finally, what happens to Behance? Um, went from a, a million... <laughs> when Adobe bought you guys to 15 million now, what does it need to evolve into either to get bigger or maybe at this stage getting a lot bigger isn't the goal. Maybe it's something else, what? Well, yeah, I mean, a good percentage of the creative world, professionally at least, is represented on, on the platform. Um, and it's in the top few hundred websites in the world in terms of traffic. I think people are using it to discover creative talent. Where I think we can do better is to make it a source of learning. You know, we, we saw just in the last year that this live streaming thing really took off. And so now we're thinking, hmm, like, how can we help people better live stream from within our products, um, which would inherently make our products viral, right? If you just see someone on Facebook or somewhere, you know, uh, designing in a product like Photoshop, it just entices you to go and do it yourself. It also helps you learn the product, which, which helps everyone. Um, and I think, uh, and, and, and also how do we better kind of broadcast and help people mine this network for what they're looking for? Um, Adobe has an effort called Sensei, which is our artificial intelligence initiative. And we did a, an experiment this past year where we used um, a lot of the um, AI uh, of, of, of people on the network and what projects interested them based on what they appreciated, which is our form of like, mm -hmm. to optimize the recommendations for people on Behance about what they might want to see. And we found just like a, you know, a, a huge increase in engagement um, based on AI for discovering creative projects that might inspire you. And so things like that, that just boost engagement in the platform, make, uh, make the Behance experience more accessible to all Creative Cloud members and help, help educate people. Well, I'm looking forward to seeing Me too. how that works out. Scott Belsky, uh, founder of Behance, chief product officer at Adobe, investor extraordinaire. Thanks for sitting down with hey, me. Thanks. thanks for having me. And now, a conversation about the future of journalism with two of the very best minds on the topic. Things don't look great for the journalism business. This week, Alden Global Capital Unit Digital First Media made a hostile bid for Gannett, publisher of USA Today and other newspapers. So why is that a big deal? Well, as a journalist myself, one who started in newspapers, I'm all for profits, but Digital First has a reputation for gutting newsrooms 
wringing the profits out of them and leaving them a shell of their former selves. Digital First doesn't have a great record of investing in innovation along the way either. And USA Today, well, it circulates a million newspapers a day, ranking it one of the top U.S. papers along with the New York Times and Wall Street Journal. It's one thing if local and regional papers are getting taken out by raiders, but this is a new marker. Tech has changed the news business, and it still is. The internet upended the old advertising distribution models, and meanwhile, the whole idea of a strong press as a check on the powerful, that's up in the air, too. This is Fort Knox, Rich Ideas and Powerful People. I am John Fort from CNBC at the NASDAQ market site overlooking Times Square. Is there a light at the end of the tunnel? Is a new business model for journalism emerging? To help me probe that question this week, I've got two of the very best. Jim Stewart is a Pulitzer Prize-winning newspaper man, a New York Times columnist, a Loeb Award-winning author, and I could go on, but we'd both get embarrassed. Walter Isaacson is former CEO of CNN, former editor of Time Magazine, and until recently head of the Aspen Institute. He's the biographer of no lesser lights than Steve Jobs, Albert Einstein, Benjamin Franklin, and Leonardo da Vinci, and I could go on, or we'd both get embarrassed. Guys, thanks for being with me. Um, Sure. No better couple of people to talk to about this, Jim. You've seen a lot in the journalism business. So first, I want to start out with where we are. Things looked really bad for the New York Times. It maybe actually was seeming to fail uh, back <laughs> about 10 years ago. January 2009, it hit a low. But it's been climbing since then, kind of having found a digital business model, not just in advertising, but people are paying for subscriptions. How is that storyline kind of changing the way we look at journalism? Well, you know, it's been an incredible change. I think one of the biggest, from, certainly from a business perspective, is that newspapers, media generally, have been going from an advertiser-supported economic model to a subscriber-supported model. Um, I don't think people realized when they would pay, you know, their two dollars or something for the New York Times that the cost of that paper was probably something like six or eight dollars, and mm. all the rest of that was paid by advertising. The advertising has plunged. What the Times and other uh, publishers have had to do is find alternative revenue sources, and the main one has been from subscribers. Now, there there is something good in that. I mean, I think people were always concerned that advertisers called the shots at many publications, if not overtly, then covertly, that's mm -hmm. where the money was coming from. They had influence. You know, the Times, the Wall Street Journal prided themselves on their independence from advertisers. They would let advertisers cancel rather than change a story in famous instances. But nevertheless, subscriber support in many ways is a pure economic way to protect journalistic integrity. The question is, how much money is there? Right. And Walter, uh, the Washington Post similarly has been reinventing itself. Jeff Bezos took it over some years ago uh, saying he wasn't doing it as philanthropy. He wanted this to be a business. It seems to be bearing out. They've also got a, a pretty good subscriber story. Where does that fit in? And I guess there are only so many Jeff Bezoses out there. One. Yes. Uh, well, first of all, what Jeff Bezos has shown is that people like Digital First to come in and say we're going to succeed by cutting, cutting, cutting. It never works. It's people who invest in new ways of doing business. People invest in digital technology, having a quicker website. So you see the Washington Post and the New York Times both starting to succeed in growing subscriber base. I just read Jill Abramson's great book that comes out in a couple of months, The Merchants of Truth, and she explains how it was somewhat surprising that both Bezos and Arthur Sulzberger are the ones who figure out subscription revenue. But let me add to what Jim said. I think that you can't just have two revenue streams, meaning advertising, and then hope to get some from subscriptions. Hmm. I think we're going to have to add to the business model because people are not going to subscribe to dozens of different newspapers. I think we have to have what I used to call the newsstand model, which is if you want a particular copy or a particular story on a particular day, you can pay 25 cents or 50 cents. We still haven't gotten that revenue stream, which I think is important. But Jim, does that work for news? Because if, you, if I'm the New York Times and I can get somebody to just pay me for my publication, why would I want to go into some Netflix-like model where they're paying some overlord a monthly fee and I just get a piece of that sometimes and I have to trust them to give me my right metered rate? Yeah, I think there's a lot of concern about who these overlords are and how much power they would get. 
um, particularly when you look at a, something like a Netflix or a Facebook, who already have enormous power. I know most, at most independent media organizations, there's been tremendous reluctance uh, to move in that direction. And I think there's, uh, that's true. At the same time, you know, now it's, it's such a different world. I, you know, I write a column for the New York Times. We get data, uh, if we want to see it, about who's reading it, where they've come from. And to my amazement, something like only maybe 25% to a third of the readers of my column actually come through the New York Times website. It's a, a third at most? Well, sometimes at most, yeah. yeah. And that means like 65, 70% of the readers are getting it through some other source, like somebody you know, recommends it or somebody on Facebook spreads it around or... Um, Facebook itself will sometimes, you know, pick out certain stories. Other, uh, you, know, you know, they put things together, um, will cite it. Uh, the Drudge Report will put it up. And then you get a big surge of traffic. Who, the coming in is kind of sideways. But the New York Times is still getting those impressions and can monetize that with their advertisers. Walter, when you look at the New York Times, um, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, these are big publications that have sort of become national. Look at, at Time Magazine, Mark Benioff, uh, the founder of <coughs> Salesforce, recently bought that. But there arguably aren't enough buyers for every local newspaper that is holding local and state government accountable, covering school board meetings, et cetera, et cetera. What happens to those? Uh, if, if you've got to ex expect people to subscribe and, and some maybe national advertising base to rise up, that, that money's not there for them anymore, is it? No, I think that's one of my biggest worries. I'm down here in New Orleans, and amazingly enough, we have two newspapers in New Orleans. It's sort of an anomaly, but we have the Times-Picayune and the New Orleans Advocate still competing, but that's pretty unsustainable. The important things about having local media in a market like this is just take the normal things that affect our lives. I'm on the City Planning Commission here in New Orleans. We're debating about Airbnb and short-term rentals. We're trying to get the balance right. This is things that affect every single neighborhood. We need to make sure that there's newspapers and TV stations, local reporters who open up that process, let people get involved. It's not just for major investigative pieces. It's for that day in and day out planning stuff that localities and school boards have to have that we need local media. And once again, I go back to this question. I know it's hard to consolidate under Facebook or others, Amazon controlling your payment system. Mm. But if we could just have a way where people could have direct payments for a story like Jim said, they come in sideways through an aggregator, they say Jim's column, maybe they should somehow or another be able to pay a dime for it, even if it's just a digital wallet or a digital cryptocurrency that's part of your browser right. and says whenever I go to a site, they get a tiny bit of money, just like every time a song gets played on the radio. The artist gets a little bit of money. <laughs> Once again, this is Fort Knox, uh, and we are talking about the future of journalism. I don't talk about this often, but I used to be a local newspaper guy myself, interned throughout college, uh, the Lexington Herald-Leader, Myrtle Beach Sun News, went to work for the Lexington Herald-Leader in Kentucky after school, went to work for the San Jose Mercury News, which is now owned by Digital First, uh, I should mention, and still have a number of former colleagues and friends working there now. Um, not, not only did I report on business, for a while I was an education reporter covering the Eastside Union High School District. Used to go to school board meetings late at night. People wouldn't know what was happening at those meetings unless there was a reporter there. And I remember one story, I figured out that the, the uh, superintendent was trying to do a bond deal that was illegal, right? And it was the newspaper that pointed out that this was illegal. Uh, Jim, without reporters sort of minding the wall in, in cases like that. Uh, we end up with governments doing all kinds of things. Is Not there a way? Government. Yeah. Is, well, there, is there a way to get people, local people to pay enough model-wise to support that? Is that something people are even going to be interested in? Well, I worry what it is going to take to, to jolt people to realizing what an important function this is and how valuable it is and how, how it is worth paying for. Um, I think as a practicing journalist, what a lot of people don't realize is how expensive quality journalism is. And I don't care if it's at the international, the national, the local level. 
good reporting takes time, it takes educated people, uh, it, it costs a lot of money. And um, somebody's got to pay for that if we're going to have it. If we don't have that, that, look, there's a lot of information sloshing around out there that people want to get into the publications. There are sophisticated PR networks that I've seen become ever more sophisticated, as frankly, as they've hired a lot of journalists at much higher pay to go to them. Mm -hmm. They are creating the stories. They are feeding the stories and giving it to publications who don't have the personnel to really vet this. And so what we're starting to get more and more is what the powerful want you to consume. This is a very worrisome trend to me and one that I think um, journalism, good journalism stands in the way of that at every level of government, business, and society. How much hope, Jim, should yeah, we take? Can I interject yeah, something? go yeah. ahead, Walter. Uh, can I interject? Just say something on what you just said, because that's real important, John. You grew up working for newspapers. You got trained. I grew up here in New Orleans. I was just like a 20-year-old, and I got trained in how to report a story, how to go out late at night and be at the school board meeting and get the facts and the spelling right. And this was the training ground, the apprentice program. This is why, John, you're a good journalist. And, you know, Jim Stewart, myself, we were both acolytes of Norman Perlstein, now the editor of the LA Times. We got trained, whether it was at Time Incorporated, the Wall Street Journal, the Lexington paper. That's another thing that's getting decimated now. People are not being trained in how to be real journalists. Yeah. Uh, Jim, I, I wonder. I, I look at something like The Athletic, which is this startup in journalism, specifically sports journalism, that's gone out and hired a lot of the best local sports journalists around the country with this subscription model, saying, hey people, you wanna know what's going on with your team? Subscribe to The Athletic, we've got great in-depth coverage. It appears to be working. Can that work for many of the important things that we used to find in a newspaper or just some of them? Like, is it possible to have the academic, like a version of the athletic that reports on education and covers school boards around the country? Not as sexy as sports. You think people will pay for it? It's possible. I, I mean, I have heard a lot of talk about the fact that the general interest publication, as we used to call them, Time Magazine, The, the Times, is, a, is an endangered species because... Um, there are specialized now publications that can just devote themselves uh, for like sports or say the arts or politics in a way that will attract people who are interested in that and will go deeper than any general interest publication ever could do. And there may be markets for that. Um, so much to my surprise though, I haven't seen a whole lot of this. Mm. And um, there were a lot of these startup digital things that were that created a lot of excitement in the beginning, you know, BuzzFeed, Vice, Business Insider, all, all this kind of thing. And, you know, they're still doing good work, but I, they're, I, I don't see them taking over from, you know, the Washington Post, the Wall Street like Journal, the New York Times. Traditional media, right? I think I, very quickly they, they start to get kind of gray. And the question is, do they really have that much growth? Are they that much different? Or are they going to start doing cuts too? Well, and I think partly it's because what people want, and I, I hope it's what they want, is they want real reporting. They don't want just, uh, you know, uh, an agglomeration of what other people have said or commentary spins on it. They want the original. They want the old-fashioned going to the school board, shoe leather. By the way, I got my start at the Quincy Herald Wig. That's spelled W-H-I-G, which shows you how far back that went. Uh, and I covered tornadoes in Northeast Missouri. Um, so yeah, they want real reporting. And I think that's where I'm starting to see that some of the old, you know, given up for practically for dead, traditional media starting to do pretty well because they do deliver that. And I think as the dust is settling, People are willing to pay for it, and they're recognizing the value of that original content. And this is what reporters do, right, Walter? We, we talk about our earliest assignments and just how gritty they were and obscure the names of the publications were. It's our way of kind of notching things off, right? I think, I think uh, talking about the Picayune and doing hurricanes is almost as good as talking about the wig and doing tornadoes. <laughs> <laughs> so, Walter... Uh, Give us some history. I mean, I know you wrote the biography, literally wrote the book on Ben Franklin, so you can give some insight. We haven't always had these strong journalistic institutions that had a ways to fall or that even professed any level of objectivity. How, how old is the model that we 
are maybe losing, at least at the local level? And how quickly do these things turn over? Is there any sense, one generation, two, and how long it might take to find another model and when something like this has happened before? This is a very good question because we shouldn't get all nostalgic about the great golden age of journalism. Throughout most of American history, you had lots of competing newspapers. Ben Franklin, as a young runaway from his brother's newspaper in Boston, arrives in Philadelphia, which has 10 newspapers, and he starts an 11th newspaper. They tend to be rather partisan. Some were on the side of the proprietors or the Anglicans or the crowns or the working class. That was a raucous form of journalism. It was only after World War II that the advent of broadcast networks, which you couldn't just be a Ben Franklin and start a broadcast network, there were only three or four of them that could run, monopolization of newspapers, because newspapers consolidated as department stores decided they didn't want to advertise in 11 different newspapers, all that sort of created a broad mass media that tried to reach a large audience. Whether you were the local newspaper, you tried to appeal to everybody. Whether you were the CBS Evening News, you said that's the way it is to a broad-based appeal. Now there's something good about the fact that that model has gone away and that you have hundreds of voices in the blogosphere and on talk radio and on cable TV. That opens up the discussion. The problem is we've yet to find the new business model that will support journalism in that. And so I ben think the Franklin, problem with these vulture... Yeah, like, like you said, Ben Franklin didn't have a staff of hundreds. He was more like a blogger, right? I mean, he was basically... And an aggregator. Yeah, and an aggregator. And, and then, He was a blogger and an aggregator, but uh, yeah. As things matured, there was this wave of consolidation, and I guess the rise of uh, strong local, regional, and especially national retail put kind of a, an economic floor, an advertising base on that. It was, it was mostly subscription during his, t uh, his time, right? Well, during uh, Ben Franklin's time, it was back to my old model of you paid per copy. You paid, right. you paid no your Picayune, which yeah, was you just... the Times. Picayune was about, which was a tiny <laughs> coin, or you paid a little coin for the, for the paper. Uh, then there was a subscription model. You're right. When you got into the 1940s and 50s, it was much more subscription-based, but the bulk of the revenue came from display advertising. The Macy's and the Saks, and here in New Orleans, the Maison Blanche and the Gotchas, they'd take out the big ads, and they would want newspapers that weren't highly partisan. They would want newspapers that people trusted, mm. and so that led to sort of a quality, but also a bit of a blandness in journalism. And Jim, that brings us back to data. Right. The reason why those advertisers wanted that audience is because I, I assume they thought it would be broad. There was trust involved. Uh, they believed it would be consistent and that if they put their ad next to that copy, people would believe in it. As we're going through all of this controversy over data in social media platforms like Facebook, Google, etc., are there echoes of that? bygone era that we might be going through as, as that settles out, maybe a new revenue model emerges? Well, there, this is a, there is an advertising revolution that's gone on that's, you know, remarkable in, in my lifetime. And, and that is that, you know, the, the old model where you would you have a general interest newspaper or a broadcast network, you'd put an ad in there and wonder, like, who read it and what effect it had. I mean, you know, there was never any scientific way to measure that exactly. Mm. Now the technology exists that if you're reading online and you're reading about a certain subject in a certain publication, the advertisers, they can, and I'm sure you've experienced it, you have recently looked at like a new washing machine or something and suddenly you're reading something and you start getting these ads for washing machines. Retargeting, that's I right. mean, this is incredibly efficient and effective advertising. And it, to my mind, at least in theory, that is so much more valuable to an advertiser in terms of the impact it can have on consumer behavior that it should lead to their willingness to pay a higher rate. Now, the question is, who's competing for that money and, and to what extent is the competition holding down the price of that? In that sense, this has been an amazing boon for advertisers. I mean, Google, who, who can like place ads to the word you're searching for, that's an amazingly efficient and effective way 
of, uh, of displaying advertising. And Google is making tons of money on that. I think traditional media hasn't refined it to that degree and hasn't gotten there, but I'm kind of mildly optimistic that at some point it's going to be so efficient and effective that they will be able to charge a premium for that. This is Fort Knox. We are talking future of journalism. Is there a business model out there in the age of the Internet? Walter, it strikes me that we're talking about the efficiency of Google, uh, search word-based advertising, uh, Facebook, personally targeted advertising, but at the same time, these two companies that have two supposedly of the perfect business models are now investing in content to sustain people's attention. Are they creeping back into realizing or perhaps embracing the idea that you do need longer form content, things that people trust, things that they need to look at every day in order to really engage the audience, and might we end up through that with a new model for journalism? Well, as Hemingway says at the end of The Sun Also Rises, wouldn't it be pretty to think so? <laughs> but I don't think so. I don't no. think that's what Google is doing. I don't think that's what Facebook is doing. I think the real problem is that 80% of the advertising dollars we've talked about goes to places like Google and Facebook, which aggregate all of your data, know that you care about washing machines or you haven't changed your tires on your car or whatever. And so I think the other type of business model we have to break is that the producers of the content, the people at the Times Picayune or the New Orleans Advocate who send people to the school board to cover the meetings, they're the ones who have to get some of that revenue. And uh, one model that I don't think could happen, but I hope could, is that all the purveyors of content could uh, go to the aggregators, go to the Googles, go to the Facebooks, and say, if you want to serve up the content we've reported, you've got to give us a cut of the revenue. Why won't it happen, Walter? Is it just because they're natural competitors and never get together and agree on anything? Well, I think one reason is that uh, Facebook and Google have almost monopolies in their particular area. But the thousands of journalistic organizations are very fractured. And weirdly enough, our antitrust law keeps newspapers and journalistic outlets from consorting together and trying to make a deal with an Apple or a Facebook and a Google. But the antitrust laws don't push back when a Google buys, you know, certain things so that in Google Maps they'll have their own restaurant reviews mm. and you don't need to go to the local newspaper to get restaurant reviews. Jim, we haven't talked a lot about TV. That's in part, and here's part of my bias as a former newspaper man coming out largely, not in every case, when it comes to general interest, newspapers, magazines do a lot more reporting than TV does. TV, CNBC excluded, we do our, our own interviews and dig it. A lot of times they're repeating just what other publications have said. So uh, as we look at the future and the combining of different media and how this is going to shake out, any sense of how much progress we've had since 1998, uh, 20 years or so ago, when this really started to hit the fan? Well, I think you're right that aggregating is, no, is not new, that what would show up on the nightly news was often picked from some other news source. I think it would be interesting even today to, to see a real sophisticated analysis of where the facts, quote unquote, have actually uh, come from, because it's probably from surprisingly few sources. So, so that isn't new, and I think it's because that's cheap. It's much easier to just pick up what somebody else is saying and repeat it than to do the original work yourself. That goes back to where are the financial incentives for the original work. And um, that's where I think we need educated and discerning consumers who, one way or another, are willing to pay for it. And to just, again, mention the billionaire model, um, <laughs> people who are willing to step in and fund this with no particular profit motive in mind as some kind of public service. I'm, I'm thrilled with what's going on at some of these places uh, in the moment, but I don't think that is long-term going to be a viable uh, solution to this. Only so many billionaires, guys. Though, I mean, with all of this income inequality, I guess more and more of them all the time. Mixed results there. Walter well, Isaacson, you... <laughs> give us the final word. Well, especially if you want to save local news, I think you have to worry about having more than just the let's trust the local billionaire model. 
I'm all for billionaires coming in and doing good, much more than vulture firms and uh, venture capital or capital firms that are going to decimate. But I do think we need to find a way for the ordinary consumer who really values high information to have a frictionless, direct way to pay people who are producing that content. I'm John Fort from CNBC, and this has been Fort Knox, Rich Ideas and Powerful People. Subscribe wherever fine podcasts are distributed. Check out the reviews on iTunes. Leave me a note. Also, subscribe to the Fort Knox series on LinkedIn. That's a brand new and great way to keep in touch with the trends I'm seeing both on this Fort Knox show and in my other work on CNBC. It's also the absolute best way to be in touch with me. Leave a comment on the series. Also, subscribe to the Fort Knox channel on YouTube, F-O-R-T-T-K-N-O-X.com slash YouTube. You can go to the CNBC apps on Apple TV or Amazon Fire TV. Also, find Fort Knox in the featured area there. And meanwhile, share this. Tell a friend. Drop me a note on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, or fortnox.com. And as always, thank you for lending an ear.